Y'all are excited tonight. I know I am. I am really excited tonight for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, to be back with the people of God on Wednesday night. Uh, I tell you, if I've learned anything over the last year, I've been teaching an online class on Tuesday night. I, I record to post on Wednesday. There is nothing like just meeting with the people of God, and 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 beyond that, studying the Word of God. With the people of God. So I'm excited for that, but I'm even more excited because of what we're about to do. We are about to step into what I consider three of the greatest chapters in the Bible, and that is Romans 6, Romans 7, and Romans chapter 8. They are absolutely full of incredible truth, as you'll see tonight. But not only is it just incredible truth, it's incredible truth that is as relevant today. It's when it was written 2,000 years ago. Not only as relevant, but as practical today as it was uh, 2,000 years ago. So we're going to start tonight. Uh, again, we've been teaching in this study for about six months, and uh, they've been posted on Wednesday nights. I hope everybody has been watching and keeping up. If not, you need to go back and review. Uh, please feel free to do that. But tonight, we're going to pick right up where we left off from last Wednesday night, and we'll step into Romans Chapter 6. Tonight we're going to be in verses 1 through 7, and the title of our lesson is Dead to Sin. Now, before we open the door into this chapter, let's begin by just a quick review of, of where we are. Now, in Romans 1 through 5, Paul has taught us about something called justification by faith. Now, justification is a Bible word, and it just literally means being made right with God. So Paul has labored for five chapters to teach us that justification with God, being made right with God, is 100% faith and 0% works. It is, it is not a whole lot of faith and a little bit of works. It's not a whole lot of works and a little bit of faith. It is all faith and it is absolutely no works. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, completely apart from works. Now we need to understand something about this. That is a dangerous form of grace. Radical grace, extreme grace, because it teaches us that my status with God, my salvation, my righteousness doesn't come through my own obedience. It comes through the obedience of Christ. Now why would I use a word like dangerous? Well, it's dangerous because people can take a teaching like that, a truth like that. And they can twist it and they can distort it. And they, it can lead to all type of things. On one end, it could lead to rampant sinning. And we'll see that here in a little bit. On, even in the, in the least extreme cases, it could, it could lead to things like careless living or even an indifference to holiness. Now, this twisting of Scripture has always happened. Psalms 56, 5, God said this, All day long they distort my word. All day long they twist my words. Paul, uh, Peter, writing about the Apostle Paul in his letter to Second Peter, said this, that the things that Paul wrote, uh, are, are, it says, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction. But they weren't just twisting what Paul wrote. Look at what he said. As they do the 
rest of the Scripture. You don't think they're still doing that today? Turn on the news. They're taking Scripture and they twist it and they distort it and they, 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 they make it mean what their itching ears want it to mean. That's always gone on. Now, with regards to grace, here's how some people might think. They may say, well, you know what? If my status with God is fully dependent on the obedience of Jesus Christ and my faith in Him, and it's not dependent on anything I do, well, then it really doesn't matter what I do. In fact, let's take it a step forward, they might say. Uh, come to think of it, if I keep on sinning, wouldn't that even bring God more glory? After all, the more I sin, the more forgiveness I need. The more God has to forgive me, the more grace there is. The more grace there is, the more God gets the glory. People can actually think like that. W.H. Alden, who was a British poet, said this, I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. Let me tell you, this is the type of thinking that Paul is going to address in Romans 6. This is, this is the type of thinking that, hey, I'm right with God. God loves me. God forgave me. I'm a Christian. I, it doesn't really matter what I do. This is why Paul wrote Romans 6. Now, let's open the door into this chapter. Paul lays the groundwork very simply, and he does it very bluntly in the first two verses. This is what he says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul says this, by no means. In other words, what Paul says is, should we just keep on living in that same pattern of sin that we've always lived in just because forgiveness is guaranteed by God? Just because our righteousness is not based on our works, but it's based on faith in Jesus Christ. If it's not about my works, should I just keep on living the way I've always lived and sinning the way I've always sinned? And Paul says, no. No. You see, that kind of thinking, when you think about it, really is ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, for example, who would ever say, hey, let's encourage people to get sick so there's more healing? That would just be dumb, wouldn't it? That would be plain dumb. That would be absurd. Well, as absurd as that is to you and I, that kind of thinking with regard to sin and grace is just as absurd to Paul. And his answer is no. No, may that never be. Some translations say, God forbid. That's a, that's a very strong Greek negative. And it, it basically means that's crazy talk. That's, that's crazy talk to talk like that. Now, before we go, Paul is going to tell us in just a moment why this kind of thinking is absurd. Now, before we get to his answer, and I'm sure most of y'all know this scripture, and you know what he's going to say, but before we get to his answer as to why it's absurd, I first want to show you what his answer is not. And this is going to turn out to be very important. His, not, his answer is not that people that think like this have misunderstood grace. You see, Paul could have said, oh, wait, 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 y'all misunderstood. I didn't really mean that salvation is 100% faith and 0% uh, uh, works. I didn't really mean that your salvation and your status before God is really dependent on the obedience of Jesus Christ and not, uh, not dependent on you. I didn't really mean that salvation is only obtained through faith without works. I didn't really mean that. You see, Paul, if he thought that was their mistake, that's what he would have said. But that's not what Paul says because that wasn't their mistake. 
they clearly understood grace. Grace really is, justification really is by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, and it has absolutely nothing to do with what I do. That is grace. That is radical grace, extreme grace, dangerous grace. And by the way, anytime the gospel is presented correctly, there's always this opportunity for misunderstanding. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his exposition of Romans said this, There's no better test as to whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this, that some people might misunderstand it to mean that because you are saved by grace alone, it doesn't matter at all what you do. So he said anytime you really preach grace, there's always an opportunity for people to misunderstand that it doesn't matter what you do. Now... What happens is this, anytime the gospel is truly presented, anytime grace is taught correctly, it, there's always a chance that it'll lead to this heresy called antinomianism. Now that's a big word and it's a, it's a combination of two Greek words. It's the Greek word anti, which means against, of course, and it's the Greek word nomos, which means law. So the whole word just means against the law. Antinomianism is this belief that Christians really don't have to obey any type of law. That there are no moral laws that God expects us to, to obey. By the way, do you know what the opposite of antinomianism is? It's legalism. You see, on one side, the pendulum swings on legalism. And it says, man, you got to obey the law. By the way, legalism has always been, go back and read Galatians, the original Jews, you got to be... Uh, circumcised. You got to obey the festivals. You got to do this. You got to do that. That's legalism. And legalism is, exists today. It exists in certain holiness circles where you can't cut your hair. You can't wear this. You can't wear that. It's the Amish. You can't use electricity. You can't do that. Legalism, legalism, legalism. But on the other side of that pendulum, it swings all the way is antinomianism, which says it don't really matter. You don't have to, it doesn't matter what you do because it doesn't depend on you. That's what antinomianism is. By the way, it is alive and well in this world today. It was alive in the first century because that's exactly what Paul was preaching against or teaching against here in Romans. But it is probably, in my opinion, more prevalent in our culture, in our world today than it's ever been. I, I want to give you an example. A few weeks ago, actually a couple weeks ago, I've got some uh, some different websites that I go to get my news, and I've got one called ChristianHeadlines.com, and I, I've been going there for a long time. And they usually have headlines that are related to Christian things. And I went out there and I clicked on a headline because it, the, uh, it, it caught my eye. And, and the story was about a girl. Her name is Lindsay Capuano. She is 22 years old. She lives in Connecticut. And uh, she makes $200,000 a month on the internet, doing things that she should not be doing, okay? And we'll leave it at that. Now, that's, you know, that in itself wouldn't have caught my eye because that's, you know, probably happening all over the place. What caught my eye is that Lindsay Capuano says that she's a Christian. She says that she was raised in a Christian family, that her parents are Christians, and they approve of what she does. And when the reporter asked, well, how can you call yourself a Christian and do the things that you do, this is what she said. She said this, God will love you no matter what. 
That's what I was taught in my house. That's what I was taught in my school. And that's what I was taught in my church. She went on to say, I pray every night. I even pray for my customers. Folks, that is antinomianism. It don't matter what I do. I'm a Christian. I'm saved. I'm right with God. I put my faith in Jesus Christ. I can do anything I want to do. God loves me no matter what. Now, you may look at that and say, what what in the world kind of church did she go to? Listen, she might very well have gone to a church that preached the gospel. Because the gospel says that your status with God is by faith in Jesus Christ and completely apart from works. But you see, that's what antinomianism does. It takes a biblical teaching and it goes to an unbiblical conclusion. See, the biblical teaching is that Christians are not required to observe the law as a means of salvation. By the way, that is true. That is 100% true. The unbiblical conclusion is that we can do whatever we want. You see, that is 100% false. Now, this is what's being addressed by Paul here in our passage. So let's read this together in its entirety. Verses 1 and 2. Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. And then here's his reason why we can't do that. He says this, How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? By the way, this is a, he gives his answer, Paul does this a lot, in the form of a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is, a, is, a, is an, a question whose answer is obvious. Is the Pope Catholic? Does Henry have red hair? Right? Those are, those are just obvious questions, right? Those are rhetorical questions. Paul says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? The answer is obvious to him. You can't. You can't. And the rest of this chapter is going to explain what he means by that statement. Now, what Paul says is pretty amazing. He says, in some sense, Christians have died. Now, what does he mean by that? Obviously, I'm not dead. I'm here tonight. I'm, I'm moving. I'm talking. I'm thinking. How, what does he mean that I have died? And he goes on to say it, it, that death has, in some sense, put me beyond sinning. What does he mean by that? Because I still sin. I still think things I shouldn't think. I still say things I shouldn't say. I still do things I shouldn't do. What does he mean that he who's died, how can we go on sinning? What do these two things mean? Now tonight, we're going to look at the first one. Next week, we'll come back to the second one. But tonight, we're going to look at what does Paul mean when he says that we have died to sin. Now, Paul is going to explain here in a minute what he means by this. And he's going to start in verses 3 through 4. So remember, he says, how can we who've died to sin still live in sin? We can't. And now he's going to spend the rest of the chapter explaining what he means. And here's his first two verses after that. He says, don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, this is an odd thing. The very first thing he does when he wants to explain to us what it means by we have died to sin is he points to our baptism. Now, what is baptism? 
I want to give you a good definition of baptism. I think it's a good definition. Other people might have other definitions, but I like this definition. Baptism is a symbol of our death with Christ that was accomplished at Calvary and experienced by us when we were united to Christ by faith. Now, we're going to come back to that in just a minute, but right now I want to focus on the word symbol. Why would Paul remind us of our baptism? Why would he immediately point to our baptism in order to show us that we are dead to sin? 37 years ago, Kathy and I stood at, a, at an altar and got married. And on that day, we both spoke these words, as I'm sure many of you did in yours, with this ring, I thee wed. You see, when I put on this ring 37 years ago, something in my life changed. At that moment, I died to all other women, and I'm alive to only one, and that's her. Something changed in my life. Now, let me ask you, did, does this, is this ring magic? Is there something special about this ring? Does it have some kind of power that when I put it on my finger, all of a sudden all other women became invisible and I could only see Kathy? Of course not. There's not, it's just a piece of metal. There's nothing special about it. See, when I said, with this ring I thee wed, and she said the same to me, it, it, it was nothing magic about the ring. Putting on the ring was a symbol of an inner reality. It was a symbol to all other people. And by the way, it was a reminder to myself. It is a symbol of the fact that I have died to an old way of life. And I'm now alive to a new way of life. That's why I wear it. Because I look at it and it reminds me of what I, the vow that I made 37 years ago. You see, in the same way, baptism is a symbol of death and new life. It's a symbol to others and it's a reminder to myself that I have died to that old way of life and I have been raised to walk in newness of life. See, this is exactly what Paul is doing when he, when he, when he mentions our baptism. He's saying, look at your ring. Remember the ring. Remember the symbol. Don't you know what your baptism meant? See, that's what he's doing. Just like I might say to a, a man, I'd say, remember your ring. Paul's saying, remember your baptism. Go back to your baptism. Think about what your baptism meant. It meant you were buried with Christ and you were raised to walk in newness of life. Now, let's go back and look at that definition. Baptism is a symbol of our death with Christ that was accomplished at Calvary and experienced by us when we were united to Christ by faith. Now, Paul is going to move past the symbol and he's going to talk about the reality. Watch what he says in verse 5. Now, this is an absolutely incredible verse. Paul says this. For if we... By the word, that, that word for means because. Because. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, Paul introduces a word here. A concept of united. We are united with Christ. That word united, unity, a union. We have a unity or a union. Somehow, we've been united with Christ. Now, this union with Christ is twofold. You see, we all know that Christ is in us, right? We invite people to come down and say, invite Jesus into your heart. We sing songs. He lives. He lives. How do I know He lives? He lives within my heart. 
And by the way, that's biblical. Paul writes in the letter to the Corinthians, examine yourself, test yourself. Don't you know this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is what? In you. So that's part of the union, Jesus in us. But the Bible describes this union another way. It says that we are what? In Him. For example, Galatians 3, 26 to 27 says this, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So that when the Bible talks about our union with Jesus, it talks about it two ways. He is in us and we are in Him. Now, what does that mean though? We see it all the time in the Bible. What does it mean when the Bible says that we are in Christ? I'm going to tell you what it means, and I'm going to show you from Scripture, okay? What it means when it says that we are in Christ, that we are united with Christ, what it means is that what happened to Christ is counted by God is happening to us. His life is our life. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. Now, I'm going to explore this for just a few minutes, and this is an incredible truth. And I, and I, I hope with everything that I do a halfway decent job so that you can just get this truth. Because what I want you to see is what God has done for you. You see, for most of my life, this is how I saw salvation. 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on a cross. And He paid a sin debt, right? So that anyone who, who believes in Him, puts their faith in Him, can have their sins forgiven. If you will, I always thought about it as a big debit card, if you will. Or a big credit card, right? He, he, he shed His blood, and that blood is sufficient to pay for as many sins as, as, as uh, the sins of the whole world. 2,000 years go by, and I come along. And I'm born and I start piling up all these sins, right? That's just right off the bat, we just start piling up sins. And at one point in my life, I decided, you know what? I need to be forgiven. And so I put my faith in Jesus Christ and I asked Him to forgive me. And at that point, right then, it's what uh, theologians call his, his sacrifice became efficacious. It means it became effective for me at that point. In other words, it kind of applied that, that debit, if he, that debit card, and he paid for my sin. Now, by the way, that's true. What I just said, there's nothing wrong with what I just said. The problem is, it's only the tip of the iceberg. What I missed for years and years is all the stuff that, that went on under the waterline, if you will. Let me explain what I mean by that. The Bible tells us that we are in Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, most of the time, that little word in refers to a physical or geographic location, right? We'd say we're in Sopchoppy or we're in the dome or we, you might say something like I'm in trouble or I'm in a pickle. It, it, it refers to some kind of physical location or physical situation. But when Bible talks about us being in Christ, you need to think of that as a spiritual location. Physically, I'm right here. Physically, I'm in Medard. I'm in, I'm, I'm in the dome. Physically, I'm in this room. But spiritually, I'm in Him. They, that's what He's referring to, a spiritual location. Now, this union, us in Christ, I want you to see that it was established by God, not you and I. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says this, And because of Him, talking about God, you are in Christ Jesus 
who became to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So it's God who has put us into this union with Christ, this, lo- this, uh, this, this spiritual location. Now, here's the thing. I want you to note when he did this. 2 Timothy 1.9 Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us, where? In Christ Jesus, before time began. You see, before time began, God already knew me. He already knew me. He, he, he already says, I'm going to see him as in Christ. I'm going to think of him as being in Christ. So what happens is time goes by. You got Adam and you got Noah and you got, you got Abraham and you got Moses and you got Elijah and you got David and you got all these people. And then finally Christ comes along. And when Christ is here, everything he does, God counts it as me doing it too because God sees me as being in Christ. God thought of me as going through everything that Christ went through because he was my representative. See, when I've always thought when Jesus was on the cross and he was dying back some 2,000 years ago, he was just dying for some, some sins that might happen or that could happen. But that's not what the Bible tells us. 1 Peter 2.24 says, Who himself bore my sin. See, God is able to look ahead. He already knows every filthy thought I'm going to have. He knows every abominable thing I'm ever going to do. And when Jesus hung on that cross, He bore those particular specific sins. See, He was already thinking of me in Him. So He was thinking of my sins belonging to Christ. When Christ died, God thought of me as having died. That's why Paul says in the very next verse, Romans 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. That the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Paul says it all the time. My favorite verse in the, in the Bible, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. He's just not making this up. See, when Christ was crucified, God saw me as being in Christ, even back then. That's why he can say, Derek was crucified with Christ. My old self was crucified with Christ. This is is an incredible truth. You see, when Christ died, it was our sins. It was our old life. It was our old self. It was our old nature that died there with him. You see, even before I was even a thought, even before I was born, God had made provision for everything that I would need to be redeemed. He'd already done that. But it doesn't stop there. God thought of us as having been buried with Christ. God thought of us as having been raised with Christ. God even thought of us as, as ascending and going to heaven with Christ. Ephesians 2.6, let's read it. Made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms. You see, physically, I'm here. Spiritually, I'm right there. Spiritually, I'm, I'm in Christ. I'm in Him. I, it's, it's a done deal, folks. I'm already there spiritually. Wherever He goes, God sees me as being in Him. Listen, this is incredible. Listen to Ephesians 1-3. through 1, 3. 
Listen to what Paul says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Where are they at? In Christ. In Christ. You see, when Christ went to heaven, all the blessings of our salvation, everything that we would ever need, wisdom and redemption and forgiveness and atonement and sanctification, everything we need was already done in Him. It was already done. And I ain't even been born yet. See, they're stored up for us in heaven, in Christ, in our representative, just waiting for you to come along. See, I put a picture of an iceberg because all that's been done, just waiting to be effective, just waiting to be applied to you. 2,000 years later, some odd, I'm born physically, but more important, I'm born again. More important, I'm born again. And I'm brought into an actual relationship. I put my faith in Jesus Christ. And at that moment, at that moment, practically at that point, I am in Christ. All that now becomes effective to me. The forgiveness, the redemption, the atonement, the, the everything that I need, I get at that moment. Ephesians 2, 13 through 14. Listen to this. In Him... You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is a first installment of our inheritance. You see, I've all God has always seen me as in Him. But when I put my faith in Jesus, 1974, 11 years old, when I did that, all that comes together and it becomes practical in my life. It becomes effective in my life. But that had all been prepared for me before time began. See, now the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ can have real practical effects in our lives. Let me explain something. See if I, it's the best example I could get. In, on March 11, 2006, there was a guy by the name of Slobodan Milosevic. Some of you might remember this. He was a former president of, of Yugoslavia. And uh, he was being tried at The Hague for war crimes. And uh, on, on, uh, I think on March 10th, they took a, re, uh, a recess in the trial. They were going to take like a four-day break. And on March the 11th, um, the, the trial was supposed to uh, pick back up three days later on March 14th. On March the 11th, he had a heart attack and he died in his cell. Now, when he died, they just stopped the trial. They just, they just canceled it, did away with it. You see, while he was alive, the law had power over him. The law could punish him. The law could condemn him. The law could convict him. But when he died, they just canceled the trial. Why? The law was still there. Even his crimes were still there. But he's dead. There, there's nothing they can do anymore. So they just canceled the trial. 1 Corinthians 15.56 says this, The power of sin is the law. You see, when I was an unbeliever, the law had power over me. All my sins were piling up and the law was convicting me and the law was condemning me and the law was sentencing me. But then I died. But then I died. You see, when I put my faith in Jesus Christ at that moment, that death on the cross that He died became my death on the cross. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. And God just cancels the trial because I'm dead. 
There's nothing the law can do to me. It has no power over me. It can't convict me, can't condemn me, can't sentence me because I have been crucified with Christ. We have died. Romans 7, 4, Paul will say this, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you are also made to die to the law through the body of Christ. When he died, we died. See, this is why Paul can make this incredible statement in Romans 6, 7. He says, For one who has died has been set free from sin. The one who has died, that's me, has been set free from sin because I died on the cross with him. But listen, it doesn't stop there. How do we live then? He's done all of that for you. And he's done all of that for me. The question is, how do I live from here on out? Do I just keep on sinning? Do I just continue in the pattern of sin that I've always lived in? Paul says, no. No, there's no way you can do that. Why? Because the same unity with Christ that, that, that caused you to die on that cross with Him is the same unity that causes you to be alive to God. See, folks, Lindsay Capuano is not a Christian. She's not a Christian. The reason I know she's not a Christian because if she had unity with Christ, she would be raised to walk in new life, not continuing the same sin that she's had her whole life. See, Paul doesn't say you shouldn't sin. Paul says you can't. You can't. Why? Because of that unity with Him. He won't allow it. You've been raised, just as He was raised from the dead and alive to God, you and I, if you're a Christian, have been raised from the dead and we are now alive to God. So the question remains, then how do we live? How do we live? How should we live our lives? Next week, we'll take a look at that. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord. Uh, for not only an incredible passage of Scripture, but I want to thank you for what you have done for me and for so many others in this body. God, that the fact that you thought about me before time began just blows my mind. God, the fact that you thought about me being in Christ when he was going through all the stuff that he went through, even today that you think about me being seated in the heavenlies with him, God, you are an awesome God. Thank you so much for what you've done. Thank you that we are just able, through your grace, to be a part of this. And God, thank you. I want to just say thank you that we're back here tonight. Not just as a family and as a body, but we can come in and study your word together. What an awesome, awesome privilege that is. So we thank you for your word, we thank you for Jesus, and we thank you for the night. And we ask all that in your precious son's name. Amen.